Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer. Some people don't like the term, but I think, like many other words, it's all in how you say it. My umbrella business is Boom with a Bang, and I think we should keep that in mind as much as possible. We Boomer women don't have a lot of role models as we traverse this chapter. So the goal of this podcast is to introduce you to guests who might incentivize, encourage, teach you to embrace your wisdom, our wisdom. With this incarnation of the Boomer Woman's Podcast, I'm interviewing people who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at boomwithabang.com. If you want to be a guest on podcast or know someone who would be a great guest, message me. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. So let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Do you ever read someone's bio and think, holy crap, how did they fit all that into one life? And look at them, they've barely reached middle age. Do you ever read someone's bio and think, "Uh, yeah, I'd love to say I did, but I know I don't have the wherewithal to do. Those two sentences, I think, about sum up my guest today. Although, let me add a few details from her LinkedIn profile. Book author, international policy expert, bank supervision consultant, advisor to the governor of the central bank, And before we get to her story, may I also add Kosovo, Ukraine, Bangladesh, Moscow, Afghanistan, Southern Sudan, Rwanda, Cambodia, and this list could go on. Jamie Bowman, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. You're very generous, Agnes. You made me blush here. Oh, (laughs) you're safe. The video won't show, I promise. (laughs) Jamie, everyone knows I come with notes, and today, just introducing you took a whole page. Can we start by finding out just who Jamie Bowman is and how she came to what most of us would say is an extraordinary life? Well, I think everybody with an extraordinary life, if I have one, I'm going to be honest, (laughs) um, most people stumble into it just like I did. I was an attorney. I worked for the federal government for a while, regulating thrift institutions. And then when I wanted to leave the government, I went in-house counsel at a really fine mortgage company in Southern California. And over a matter of months, our fine company went from uh, extending mortgage loans that built family wealth, and we ended up doing subprime loans. And that was basically using your home equity as an ATM machine. So um, we were now funding things like breast augmentations, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, and all those other equity loans that fueled the subprime crisis um, that came to head in 2007. Well, in 2000, I didn't like it. I didn't like the loans we were making. I didn't like the way we were getting brokered loans. It just wasn't my thing. But in Southern California, that's the only job I could get because everybody else was involved in the same loans. And I was looked at as someone who just didn't understand the economics. And someone said, if you'd gone to Harvard, you'd understand this, which um, hurt my feelings. So looking for a new job, I stumbled on the international work. And there's a few websites that you can go to and you can find different types of projects. And by incredible luck, at the same time, the World Bank and USID, the big donors around the the world, were looking for people who knew how to write mortgage laws and teach people in the central banks how they worked and where the pitfalls were. And since I'd been in subprime, I knew them all. So that sort of got me out of Southern California and then into the uh, international development market. And I, I didn't, I wasn't exclusively in mortgages. Once you get on site, they, they ask you to do everything and anything, um, write up pro- proposals, help with contracts. So I was a lawyer, but I would, my client was now the Ministry of Finance of uh, Bangladesh or it was the new assembly in Kosovo, or it was uh, the Ministry of Justice in Armenia. So it turned out 
it was really exciting, but it was still a job. You know, it wasn't like I was, I was sat at a desk every day. I mean, when I apply for jobs now in the U.S., they go, are, do you, do you come to the office? I mean, are you able to sit at a desk? And I, yes, that's what I did for the last 20 years. It was just in a different country. So it was a lot of fun. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've done my research. Do you want me to tell you all about you? No, I'm just joking. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell me, as long as it's good. (laughs) And, you know, I'm going like, this woman goes to two smallish West Coast universities. And then I looked Berkeley into... It's not a smallish West Coast university. Ber- Berkeley's a big... My first well, class I, at Berkeley was 2,000 people. Had 2,000 people in Economics 101. So Berkeley was okay. big, but my law school was small. Okay, well, I guess, and that's where I sort of went, you know, I guess Fair maybe enough. because I'm used to the name of Berkeley that I never, you know, you always think of like, you know, Harvard and all those bigger east coast universities as sort of the big ones so i do apologize complaints from cal bears okay and i apologize right up front walk that back walk just whack me upside the head no worries no worries okay so you went from one (laughs) smallish one amazing west coast university and then a smallish right um but you have the pacific mcgeorge school of law states that they actually prepare lawyers to practice locally and globally. I was thinking that was the link, but. No, they didn't teach me how to practice globally. In fact, at the time, um, I, it, when I went to law school, I was dating a man who's going to Harvard Business School and Harvard did not offer any international or global business courses. That's how rapidly this whole globalization came around. I mean, we were just starting to think of in terms of working in other places. I got a good education in McGeorge, but that's, but I had a good basic law school education and that gave me the confidence that I could do what I, I did. Or maybe I was just naive. <laughs> my, my, that might be, or stupid, that might be one. Okay, and, and please, you forgive me now, but I am also, you know, we're, we're children of the 70s. It's like naivety, right. na- naivety reigns supreme. We could do anything. <laughs> so Right, 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 right. Or maybe I'm just missing that part of it. I never... In the beginning, of course, I went to places like Kosovo, which wasn't too dangerous. Uh, Ukraine was not dangerous at the time. Bangladesh, I did get attacked. Um, and that was a real eye-opener for me because, as I, as I explained in that chapter, everybody had warned me. But, you know, I didn't take it seriously. People were so friendly and um, they were so welcoming. I I, ne- I never took it seriously as I should have. And then I learned my lesson the hard way. And that stayed with me a long time. Um, When you're physically attacked, um, and I was just grabbed, so it wasn't so so dangerous, but it stayed with me probably for the rest of my career. So several thoughts come to here, come to mind here. And and first of all, you know, I mean, I I read that great long list, and it was only part of your list of countries. Mm -hmm. And but for as long as I can remember, uh, uh, most of them have been political hotspots, you know, where war and carnage were all in a day's work. So so how many of those countries were you in at the at points in time where like you may have feared for your life, perhaps? You're, you're, I hope you're not you're not pinning that upheaval on me. <laughs> There's no connection between me being in country and political, political upheaval. You you tell us the truth here, Jamie. Okay. <laughs> this is truth or dare, me. truth or dare. <laughs> Just in the Bangladesh chapter, I, I mentioned this, that I read up on it. I was willing to go. I looked at the guidebooks and the guidebooks didn't talk about anything, didn't mention any kind of um, danger to foreigners. But the guidebook had been printed before 9-11. And after 9-11, things changed dramatically around the world. And Bangladesh became much more radical. Um, When I was in Ukraine, they had just declared their independence from Russia. And when you talk to Russians, they were saying, no, they're not independent. This is like a phase. It was like a child growing up and they would come back. And it was very predictable if you listen to what the Russians have been saying for years. I hope that doesn't offend anybody, but it, it's true. They've never felt that Ukraine could be separated from Russia. It's part of it. I did go to dangerous places in Afghanistan, but I, the first time I was there, it was 2005. And as the 
title explains I actually rode a bike around downtown Kabul once because I'm a very bad bike rider. I never did it again, but I could walk. Well, not, I mean, I had to be careful, but I was able to walk through the markets with my boyfriend. Um, so it wasn't that dangerous at the time. In 2010, it was completely different. That's for sure. I, I will just mention to our audience here that sometimes what you're saying might sound a little cryptic. You have written a book, which we will get to later. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry no, sorry. no, 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 no. That's great. It's just people are going to say like, what are you talking about? Um, no, this is great. Uh, as I say, we're going to get to the book. But right now, I am so interested in the life you have led to date. So you're you're a woman lawyer. Correct. How often was being a professional of your gender an issue in these countries? Well, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's an advantage. Um, when you go to the Muslim countries, you're sort of a third sex. They, you know, you're not male. You're not female in the way that they treat females. Yeah. They treat you differently. And I took full advantage to that. But there would be times where the Islamic men would not shake my hand. Uh, that haram, it was forbidden. But for the most part, you know, this new generation that I met in Iraq and Afghanistan, well, more Iraq than Afghanistan, are TV watchers. They, you know, they watch American films. They were able to tease me. Their English was was good enough oh, that, good. that they could tease me. But I never really had the gender issue, except when I I was walking down the street in, um, in Kabul, and this was in 2005, and I had a long skirt on, I had a long sleeve t-shirt on, my head was covered, so I, I attempted to look modest. Um, and even if I didn't fit in to the, like, as, as local women did, I hope that they re understood that I was respecting their culture. Okay. Well, as we walked down the street, cars stopped. And men shook their fists at me and screamed at me. And uh, my boyfriend kept saying, oh, oh, they're saying welcome to Afghanistan, which yeah. they were not. Um, they were clearly furious with me. Uh, and a woman came up and she pulled up her skirt a little bit and she showed these frilly pantaloons like Scarlett O'Hara would have worn. Okay. And if you if to wear a skirt, I had to make sure I had the right underwear. And so that's why they were so mad because they could see a flash of ankle when I walked. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, this is interesting because even, you know, just taking it into a strictly women thing now in terms of the clothing is how, how much research would you have to do? Because it seems to me that, you know, you, you think of the outer appearance and you think, okay, like I've done this, I've done that, I'm trying to respect. Uh, and how do you know about long-legged pantaloons i never did i i never <laughs> buckled under that um i was in a pretty modern um ministry and I, they drove me to work so i was i was only on the street one more time one or two more times and the other times i wore pants and um it was in a pretty modern pretty enclave where there were a lot of foreigners so but i was careful yeah yeah were you ever downright scared uh, when I was attacked in or, or grabbed in Bangladesh, that scared me to the point where I actually shook. That bothered me. Yeah. I was a I was a excuse me scared in Afghanistan because uh, where I lived was close enough to the U.S. embassy that when the insurgents shot a mortar or a rocket aiming for the U.S. embassy, it would sometimes fly over and land near where I lived. And um, let's see, then when I was in Southern Sudan and I lived in a tent because they didn't have the buildings, there was a, 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 a camp made out of recycled safari tents. And I lived in a tent for 18 months and an ammo dump went off. You know, some soldiers were moving some ammunitions and they were careless and they exploded. And so we had rockets and I, I was only in a soft-sided tent. There was no place to take cover. That kind of bothered me. That stuck with me. <laughs> and as I said several minutes ago, where war and carnage are all in a day's work. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I think there are rules that you should, you follow. They you, you have to be aware of your surroundings. You have to understand what you're getting yourself into. You follow the instructions of the you know personal 
detail men who keep you safe. I am writing a sequel and I talk about Iraq, which was very, very different. But at least in this book, for the most part, you know, mothers would call me and they'd say, you know, my son's going to Afghanistan as a consultant. You know, I'm worried about him. It's like, if he follows the rules, he'll be fine. But that's not to say that a lot of, you know, outside of the embassy where I was, a lot of people, Americans did get killed. A lot of foreigners got killed. Fortunately, I wasn't one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just to, you know, I, I need to know, like we see in all the movies, you were wearing five inch stilettos the whole time, right? No, but some women did. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, my God. I thought I was joking. <laughs> Not me. I wore sensible, sensible shoes. Low Good for running. <laughs> running, exactly. But now there were some women who is, they felt that that was important to their, you know. Their books. You would have shown more than ankles in a five-inch in five stilettos. Right. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> okay, languages. How many languages have you learned or did you at least partially learn? None, because wow. I spoke English and most of the world wants to speak English. I remember yeah. being at a at a table in Kosovo. And so you had someone who was German, somebody was from Japan, somebody, you know, they had nationalities all around the table and everyone spoke English. There's a lot of times where if you deal with a minister, he will be able to understand what you say in English, but not feel comfortable speaking it. So I would have a translator. I did a lot of work through translation translators. And what you do is, first of all, you help them understand the terminology that you're going to use. I mean, you coach them on issues that they may not know. And then you ask them very politely that if you say something in English that is offensive in any way, they need to clean it up. No, for sure. Because you're not there to offend anybody. Yeah. Uh, there have been a couple times I've said, this is meant to be offensive. Please say it in an offensive way. <laughs> um, and they like they feel uncomfortable about it, but they'll do it. I mean, yeah. you, if you have a good translator, you know, that's one reason why um, the U.S. Army is so adamant about getting the translators from Afghanistan and Iraq back to the United States because yeah. they really were lifelines. Um, they did all kinds of stuff for the troops there. And the promise was made to bring them back uh, to the U.S. And that visa, I, for a long time, and I don't know what the status is now, is that visa program stalled. And there's a, you know, I would walk down to the White House here in Washington, D.C., and there would be men in uniform you know, protesting the fact that the, these weren't being processed timely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm in Canada. And the exact same thing happened where, yeah. you know, so many of these people who had given everything for our Canadian troops and mm -hmm. uh, and to help them out and to make sure that they were successful and they get left behind. I mean, it's just everything's wrong with that picture. You know, there are Canadians that do this as well. And I will say that you know, the U.S. has their own approach to international development. But, but when I worked with Canadians or the Canadian embassy, somehow they always picked the jewel project. The, it's just it's a nice size it's manageable. They have the right people working on it. Um, there is a start and there is a finish. There's good metrics. Um, it's reasonable. And and somehow it's it's like training teachers for a university, giving just really well thought through projects. So it's always nice to run across the Canadians when you're in country. Oh, well, I was going to laugh and say, yeah, we just want to be liked. <laughs> You are like because you do a good job. Yeah, but we make sure we do pick the jobs we do well at. Yeah, and we always say sorry and thank you a lot. So, I mean. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to brighten up part of this mayhem and carnage. <laughs> what was your favorite assignment and why was it your favorite assignment? Okay, um, well, this isn't very popular, I suppose. But after working in Micronesia, Kosovo, Kiev, Ukraine, Bangladesh, I got a job in Moscow for six months. And it was the first time I'd been in a real city in a long time. And Moscow is a magnificent city. It's up there with New York and um, Chicago and Berlin. It's got such history. And it was at a time, it was in 2004, where Putin really wasn't on the scene yet. Um, he was... He, he was there, but he wasn't the Putin that we know today. 
and they'd been crushed in the Olympics. So they were kind of broken and I could walk freely around town. I could take the Metro um, on the weekends. I could go see Lenin's mummy. Um, I could go to their, you know, see the Fabergé eggs. It was really, it's it, their history is so amazing. I had some problems there though. <laughs> I was arrested on the street and um, because my residence permit was two days out of date to, through no fault of my own. And so they were, they had me by my coat and they were dragging me down the street and they're like, you're going to Moscow jail. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I had counterparts and um, I called up my, my assistant and she's like, oh, Jamie, you, you have to get out of that. Some people do not come back from Moscow jail. And I'm like, and so she talked to the, the officer and, and they couldn't make a deal. So then she goes, call Alexi, who was my counterpart. He goes, he's snowboarding in the mountains, but maybe he, as a man, can talk you know, the officer into giving you a bribe or taking a bribe. So Alexi, to his credit, was snowboarding and he answered his phone on the slopes and I handed the phone to the officer. He, they talked back and forth and then he hung up, he goes, okay, you're going to pay this. Okay, so I hung up the phone and I expected to go like into a back alley or someplace small and clandestine uh, to pay this bribe, which was really only about 10 bucks. And the officer's like, so you pay or you not pay? And I'm like, I'll pay, I'll pay. And I peeled off notes right there where everybody could see. It was clear that I was paying a bribe. And despite that, I still really enjoyed Moscow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, it's it's interesting that, as you say, you hear about this all the time, like the paid you know, bribes and stuff like that. But yeah, the last thing I would expect is, oh, yeah, we're just in the middle of Red Square here. And oh, here's all the tourists. Hello, hello. And here's all your bills peeling off of your wad in your pocket. <laughs> oh, my yeah. it, and, you know, Red Square is amazing. I mean, it, it's like just such it's so vast. I remember watching it on TV as a kid, that grainy black and white, you know, usually on PBS, they'd be showing Victory Day parades. And to be there, you're like, I never thought I would be in Moscow. You know, growing up, it was a Cold War. Yeah. And then to be there was really spectacular, at least for me. Well, it's interesting, too, that, you know, as you said, it was, if you look at New York or places like that, well, first of all, so many European and that continent cities are so much older than anything we've got here in North America. And right. I find that absolutely fascinating. But I take it you also mean that there's, you know, there's light nightlife, there's excitement, there's, you know, people milling about. Is there or there there's there was crazy nightlight in Afghanistan, but I never got to participate. You know, I lived in the wrong place. But yeah, they had clubs and you could buy alcohol. Afghans could not go into bars, so it would just be expats. There's a lot of really not my kind of nightlife in Moscow. But most places, you know, you go out to dinner, you meet friends and that type of thing. I'm always very worried about being getting into any kind of trouble in a country. Yeah. There are so many stories of like um, nice young men meeting wonderful college girls um, at restaurants and bars and then them being drugged and robbed. And then they have to explain to their firm why their computer is missing because I mean, you can't just buy a computer or replace it because they have all the software. So there are a lot of there are too many stories about that because and that was just something I wanted to avoid yeah, yeah. not that I was gonna you know be, be drugged but I was careful I was careful were you ever sort of looked at differently because of your international affiliations in terms it sounds like you were working at a fairly high level and whether it's you, me, and Joe on the street, or whether it's somebody in a, in a position of authority, they sort of look at you and go like, either, whoa, hands off, because this person's too important, or, hmm, how can we get this person into a corner and get information or something? See, I'm making your life even more clandestine than it may have been. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not that important, for sure. And, but, but you I must know, have had knowledge. He hadn't. You know, in the big scheme of things, I'm sort of a dope because, you know, it's it's what I did was I was very focused on what they hired me for. Uh, I know there are other people who love to play the politics, but they didn't hire me for that. And I didn't want to take that on. 
So maybe I'm a little boring, but I didn't, I don't play politics well. And so luckily I know that and I stay out of it. Which is probably why today I'm interviewing Jamie Bowman and not Jamie Bond. Bond, <laughs> Bond, Bond, Jamie Bond. <laughs> zero, zero, one. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do a little side. Oh, Go ahead. No, okay. I was just going to say, I'm going to do a little sidestep here because this part of your life is actually something I've considered. Long hiking, such as the coast to coast in England mm-hmm. and El Camino de Santiago mm-hmm. in Spain. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. Um, well, it, it was sort of a pilgrimage for me because I had just finished a very tough job and I encourage everybody to go. There was, there was, um, after the movie, well, I went before the movie The Way with okay. um, Martin Sheen. And after that movie came out, everybody wanted to walk the oh. El Camino. So we actually went before Easter and some of the pensions were closed. So, I mean, we had slim pickings, but we had a lot of the days by ourselves. There's a service you can hire and they take your luggage from place to place. And I think that's a nice way to go because then you're not carrying your, you know, all the stuff that that you don't need to have during the day. But it is spiritual. Um, you go, you take a train out and you to get a pilgrim's passport, you have to walk, walk 100 kilometers. Okay, so you start walking at dawn. I mean, you get off the train at dawn and you start walking and you walk, what, 10, 17 kilometers, depending on the day. It's really neat. They in the pens- in the places where you stop to eat, they have pilgrim menus. And at the time, it was nine euros, and you got a salad, an entree, a dessert, and a glass of wine. So wow. it was really <laughs> lovely. And after you walk every day, several I don't know, fifteen miles a day. Not you know, depends on the day, and you get into the into to the cathedral and you're there in that open square it's emotional because you're so tired you've been outside and even if you're not a believer you just thank god you're there and you go into the to the cathedral and there's a nun singing in a crystal clear voice and if you haven't started crying already that pushes you over you meet people along the way. Everybody's there for a, a good reasons. Nobody is grumpy. Some people want to be left alone, but the, it's they're polite about it. You share chocolate bars. It's really a unique experience. And, you know, I meet people all the time. I encourage them to get into shape. You know, they, they recommend that you be able to walk. I think it's 12 miles back to back, you know, two days back to back. I did that. I worked on that. I built up to it and I loved it. I really loved it. I was ready for it to be over when it was done. It was like, great. Five days was just fine for me, but it's really a magical experience. At the beginning, you said we, were you traveling with other people or were you by yourself? Yes. I had a boyfriend and and when, if we talk about the book, he's in the book uh, in the book, his name is Roberto, and we met in Kosovo, and then we ping-ponged around the world on different projects. So we worked together in Kosovo, then we met up again in Afghanistan. He was supposed to come with me to South Sudan, but he got a better job in Dubai, and I lived in a tent. He lived in an air-conditioned high-rise. We got back together in Rwanda, and then we were together again the last time I was in Afghanistan. So he's the one that walked the El Camino with me. Okay. One of the reasons I asked that was just that last year I interviewed a woman who she walked her first Camino uh, yes. at age 70 by herself. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like, holy crap. Wow. There's hope, there's hope know, for me yet. <laughs> there's some benefits for that because by the time I got to the end of 100 kilometers, um, I think I had heard every story Roberto had to tell. <laughs> it's like, it, it was, it was, as long as you're fit, you know, there were kids we met um in the beginning and they were like, oh, we're going to walk it in four days. You know, we'll see you suckers. And then, you know, it turns out they blew out a knee or, you know, they twisted an ankle and, and it, there's just such precious parts of the El Camino there you know it's very 
rural and leafy and a lot of pastures you walk through. Did you do your research, you get your pilgrim's pastor. It's really, an, it, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I did it. I talk about going back, but now I don't know if I'm up to it. You said she's 70. She was 70. She was 70 when she did her first one. Wow. And I think so she, then, she did a second one, a shorter one. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Now yeah. I hadn't heard about the coast to coast. What was that one? Okay, it's it's up in the north of England, right where it's the the most narrow part okay. of, of Britain. And I didn't do the whole thing. I started not halfway through. About I cut off about a fourth because I had I had I didn't have enough time to do it. Okay, and that is amazing. If you're and, and I walked out alone, and it's leafy pastures, and it's um, you stop. You know, you know where you're going to stop every night. It's the same thing. Um, I had a service carry my luggage because I didn't have Roberto to depend on. And it's the same thing. You meet people who love to hike and it's just such a pleasant experience yeah. that it's challenging though. It really is. And, and it ends up in Robin, a place called Robin Hood Bay. <laughs> so it's really, it's so British and, you know, you're walking along and then it starts to rain and pour and, <laughs> You meet people go, wonderful day for a walk. And it's like awful. But it's, I, I enjoyed the El Camino a little more just because it was more spiritual in the sense that, you know, you end up at a cathedral. But, but I, and there's so much history there. The coast to coast is a little, you know, it's not the same weather, but it's a nice challenge and it's so pretty. Well, and the West Coast Canadian in me said, yeah, days of rain continuously. So what? <laughs> well, I'm a Californian, so you know it's something to get used to. Yeah, one of my best friends lives down there, and she looks at me. We talk every week, and I'm all bundled up and grumpy. <laughs> She's in her spaghetti straps. Ah, oh, dear. Okay, I have a saying that for me is a joke, and it is: when I rule the world, things will be different. Mm -hmm. If you were to say that. You must have some pretty tangible thoughts, though. Is there any you want to share that you can share if you ruled the world? That's so hard. I guess somebody asked me, and this is a little easier question. Um, someone asked me if there's one huge thing I could change. Okay. I'm more of a, like, I'm focused. Yep. Um, the thing I would change is I would get rid of greed. You know, if I had that magic wand and could change one thing, I would take that out of us. And that, I think, would change the world. I think we would want different, we'd have less expectations for material things. We'd have less, ex, you know, we would demand less, we'd be less hard on the resources. We, you know, there's just so much that goes along when you don't have that instinct that drive right. which greed is you know even on a small level so that would be my magic wish that's a great one because when you look at any of the problems in the world today it's it's greed of one sort or another whether it's mm -hmm. monetary political uh religious environmental. Uh, environmental like yeah just everything uh yeah okay that thank you i'm gonna make note of that because when i change when i rule the world i'm hiring you as the, the greed eliminator <laughs> yeah, it'd, it'd be interesting to see how things would shake out you know how quickly things would evolve differently with a couple of mid-age women at the at the helm yeah it'd be great yeah there you go okay you've had a, a pretty amazing life i shouldn't do that right in front of my microphone um you've had a pretty amazing life to date what's next well, I'm writing a sequel to my book. Okay. I wrote the book during COVID because I was really worried that at the end of COVID, I wouldn't have done anything, you know, and it was just so nice to have that time to, and I, and as for all those writers out there or wannabe writers, I just started an hour a day. It was like exercising, like swimming or running. It's like I started small and I didn't tire myself out. So I put together stories that I really thought were important. And then since everybody else was home during COVID, they um, they helped me out. They read it and they said, this is funny. This is not funny. I don't like that story. You know, it was really, they was really nice to help me out. 
So I wrote that book and I got it published about um, eight months ago. Now I'm writing the sequel because in the first book, there's sort of a lesson learned in every chapter. And it's not the lessons, it's not an in-your-face lesson. It's an example of what I experienced when I was overseas. So my whole goal in writing the first book was to highlight issues that you're going to face when you're working overseas that you don't expect. Like I had a toxic boss. I mean, when you're over trying to do good and improve the world and alleviate poverty, the last thing you think is you're going to get some guy who's, you know, rude and belittling. When I got attacked in Bangladesh, that's a lesson learned. I was told things were dangerous. I didn't listen. That was my bad. And, and that goes through the whole, you know, the rest of the book. There's always like some gem that you should be able to take away for it. I don't tell you how to think. I mean, I leave a lot of things open, just like I tee up these issues. And then as a young person, a lot of people who buy my book are, are young diplomats and, and young folks going into, into international development. So I'm writing the sequel because, so it turns out I've got a few more lessons to pass along. And uh, so I'm trying to crank that out about 75, 80% through. through. And what I got to do after that, I think I'd like to write a novel. You know, I'm kind of hooked by the writing bug. And um, and it's fun. You know, when I first published the book, somebody said, oh, my God, you're an author. And I corrected them. I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm a person who wrote a book. Uh, which I thought was different, you know, I didn't talk about the craft of writing or, you know, but I I learned that I really liked it. And so if I can get the second book done, and then all my stories will be complete, that will be it. Um, And then if I could write a novel, I really would like to. I was going to just follow up with that question about like when you were talking about the the uh, the lessons learned is, you know, are these sort of for women in these countries, but it sounds like this is an everybody book. You know, if this particular lesson doesn't apply to you, not a problem because in the next chapter, this one could well apply to you or, or give you food for thought, shall we say. Right, right. Because the, the things that I talk about are things that you don't have to be overseas to deal with, you know, it's just oh, you know, basic. And in one chapter after my father died, I didn't take care of my mental health. You know, my I approach to his death was, well, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to work through it. And that didn't work out for me. I got very, very nervous and I didn't do the job as well as I should have. And that chapter, I hope the takeaway is you got to be kind to yourself. Um, if you're struggling, you've got to take care of your, yourself first because then you can't take care of anybody else. Uh, so that's a that's a lesson for everybody, you know. That you don't have to be overseas and you don't have to be female. So yeah, that it it has a pretty broad appeal. And of course, then there's a love interest. Everybody likes that. I mean, the there are eight chapters, eight countries, and the number one question I get is, "What happened to the boyfriend?" <laughs> Which is kind of irksome. <laughs> Well, you see, and, uh, and my, I actually had the thought of, I am not going to ask what happened to the boyfriend. I had that thought. Uh-huh. Do you still get headhunted? I do, but I'm 65. And so, you know what? It's like when you turn a certain age in development, it's like they put you on a list. I really believe that. But but it's okay. Because in the, it's a, it, it, it was bothersome at first, but... I'm ready to let go, you know, because there is a new generation of people who want to do this, who are enthusiastic. Um, hopefully now and again, they'll pick me up for a project. Um, I'd love to do one. You know, I get interviewed every so often. They'll, they'll we'll get back to you. Um, so there might be another couple of projects in my future. But um, I kind of like this third chapter of my life that now I'm, you know, it's like I can go into a couple of bookstores and see my book. That's really fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet it is. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I'm, I'm just going to ask this as one quick question. Um, if you are finding yourself sometimes put on the shelf, is that an age thing or a gender thing? An age and gender thing? I think it's an age and gender thing. I am, I've talked to people about it. And the men who I worked with who are older with me said the same thing. That, that after 60, 62 
they were no longer sought after. But I think it is tougher for women. I do. In fact, the women, they, they say statistically there are more women in international development and diplomacy than men. And I suppose that's true, but I don't think that they're in the key jobs. Uh, all of my chief of parties, and that's like the boss of the project, they were all men, always. And so they brought in a lot of women on the jobs that the men didn't want to do. Oh, my God, I hope I don't get blowback on this. But it's true. There are a lot more women in Afghanistan and Iraq than you expected because uh, the men wouldn't go. And they filled those slots with women like me. But, uh, yeah, I do think it's a gender thing. And it's disappointing because I don't think I look, look old. I don't feel old. I still take care of myself. But... You know, you can see from my resume. Well, and the thing is, is what what matters is how old your brain is. And it sounds like, oh, my God, you know, like like your brain is well stocked with great inventory. You well, know. yeah, you know, at least about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll, blow, I'll join you on the blowback train because my when you were saying about more women, my one thought is, yeah, they want the women because the women will get things done. So we'll see how much hate mail either one of us get. <laughs> yeah, you know, there is there's a lot of truth in that. Very practical approach. I don't know. and there, But there are a lot of good men out there, you know, a lot of hard workers. So, yeah, we don't want to, we don't, I don't want any nasty grams. No, we, we love them all and we appreciate them. And at this stage of my conversation, I will often ask my guests if there is anything they want mid-age women, because our, you know, Boomer Women podcast, mid-age women to know or to think about. But I, th I think in yours, with your story, maybe I should ask if there's anything you want the world to think about besides greed. We've already gone over greed, and that's a great one. And this, I wouldn't have had this, I, I wouldn't have had this response five years ago or 10 years ago. But today, I would say, I think we all have to remind ourselves that we're all in this together and that. It is okay. I mean, I get these messages on my Facebook feed about, you know, it's going to be another great day and, you know, be kind to people. I, I think that those are things that I've scroll, I scroll through slower and slower. I need those reminders that we are all dealing with big issues. And yes, it's important to be kind. And yes, be open to caring for each other more than just ourselves individually, not as if that makes sense. It's just so important right now. You know, I was walking down the street the other day and I took care of my parents when they were elderly, at least my mom. Um, and you could just get the habit when you see someone sitting down by themselves on a brick wall, you're like, I asked them if they're okay. Mm -hmm. And and I asked, there's a lady just sitting there and staring off into space. And I go, are you all right? And she goes, oh my God, thanks for asking. She goes, I, I, I'm not all right. I've got stuff going on. I do. And she goes, but you know, the fact that one person stopped long enough to say and be interested in me has made all the difference. But then I had to hear 30 minutes of how her life was going, <laughs> going the wrong way. But okay, I shouldn't have put that part in there. But it's so true. Like if you if you're sitting there, it would be nice to have someone just say you're all right. Yeah. So is that helpful? Is that a good yeah, answer? No, you know that's a great answer, and I am going to leave in your little aside because it, it's true. I mean, to, well, let's turn the other side of the coin. Is how often do you say, "Hey, how are you doing?" And you could be having the day from hell, and you're going to say, "Hey, I'm fine." because you don't want to go into that big long story and yet you know maybe we would pay more attention and and i guess be i can't remember just what you said now but it was like oh you, you didn't say like um are you are you, so are you all right yeah you all that's right are you not are you okay because yeah we're all okay but you said are you all right and to me that was just a little bit more sensitive and thoughtful that's um, me sensitive and thoughtful Oh, well, there you go. Yay. I'm kidding. You know, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> I'm just thinking the longer I talk to you, it's like, I want to talk to this woman again. Um, okay. So your book, um, be before, before you tell our listeners about it, let me read the first page of the Amazon summary. Okay. 
getting roughed up by Islamic fundamentalists, the weekly feline sex fest in Kyiv, bribing Russian police to avoid jail in Moscow, sheltering under the sink with the lizards when the ammo dump exploded in Zuba, automatic weapon training in Indiana, and that ill-fated morning bike ride in Kabul. It was a great job. (laughs) It was a great job. So tell our listeners, I mean, you've touched on a couple of those stories, but tell our listeners about the book. What's the name of it? Uh, The name is Bike Riding in Kabul, and I get a lot of pushback on the title. Uh, Either you love it or you hate it, because I think that the the concern is that they think that it's all about Afghanistan. It's not. There's two chapters on Afghanistan. But the fact that I was such a lunatic that I would actually be talked into taking a bike ride in downtown Kabul in 2005, just this was a crazy adventure, um, which I never did again. But it talks about my time overseas from 2002 until 2010. And the countries included are Kosovo, Ukraine, Bangladesh, Moscow, which is Russian Federation, Afghanistan, Southern Sudan, Rwanda, and Afghanistan again. And it, I think I mature over the book. I learn a lot, but because a lot of times I was a single woman, I mean, uh, Roberto and I ping-ponged around the world, but a lot of times I was by myself. And a lot of, I find that women by themselves are more approachable, you know, than if you're with a couple. And so I had a lot of interesting experiences. People talked to me, people came up to me. I dealt with local staff. I dealt with ministers. And I really came away with something I wanted to put in print. The other thing is, is that it it does track my father's demise in Alzheimer's, which is everybody, it seems like so many people are dealing with the same issue now. And the bottom line, it is not a fun thing at all. This idea that there's this notebook. I remember there was a movie and they had Gina Rollins and she always looked fabulous. She just was forgetful. That was not our experience with Alzheimer's. It was a long, difficult thing. And um, I talk about that a little bit in the book, you know, because he got worse and worse every year. So even though you're overseas and even though you're, you're having a pretty interesting job you still have to deal with the stuff at home and so that's part of the book as well personal question just because we do get into um dementias and elderly uh, did you have guilt about not being able to be more present for him uh well this is part of the next book but he extracted from me a promise when he was sharp that when my mom needed it i would come home basically and he, the way he said it's like you know, it would give me peace of mind if you would k- promise me that you'll, you know, take care of her. She won't need financial stuff, but when she needs a little more help and I'm like, sure, no problem, dad. It's like the, figuring I'd never have to like, you know, make good on the debt. And then I did. And so there was, when she was in trouble, I came back and I lived in San Jose for a, two and a half years with her. And in so I paid him back. And it was that after he had passed? Yeah. Okay. Wow. I thought I paid him. Let's put it this way. When she died, I had no guilt. I spent, you know, I took her to lunch every day. I rolled her around in wheelchairs. You know, I, I did everything I possibly could for her. And then when she died, it was like, okay, I did my duty. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, sorry, I didn't mean to get sort of heavy there. It's just that sometimes the discussion is, as working mid-age women, you know, we have guilt if there's children and we have guilt if there's parents. So, you know, like it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Sure, I totally understand. But that, you know, that's part of life now. And it it was a long slog. I remember it's like years before they got it. I mean, they were diagnosed with it. it or, or I guess my dad just had it. And somebody said, that's going to be eight to 10 years of heartbreak. And that's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, where do we find the book? 
You can get on Amazon, and I know people don't like Amazon for a number of good reasons, but you can you can order from Amazon. Barnes and Noble has it. There's a couple of bookstores in Washington, D.C. that have it, but for the most part, oh, it's an indie. Oh, and I can brag a little bit. It's won two Fire Bird Awards for Best New Nonfiction and Best Memoir, I think. And then it just recently won um, a Nautilus Award, which is really kind of a prestigious award. It was a silver in um, travel memoirs. So I think I'm pretty hot stuff right now. Yeah, I, you know, and I apologize because in my notes, I have something about the book won a few awards. <laughs> it did, you know, and that was really, really fun. It, it made, I don't, I was, I was happy with the book, even without those awards, but that's a little bit of validation. No, for and, sure. you know, you can throw that out there every so often. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, and I will just add that on numerous occasions, I have gone into a local bookstore and said, I want this book, please bring it in. So for those people who don't like ordering online or don't like Amazon or whatever, give, give that a try. I'm sure they'll find it for you. They'll do that for you. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I will put the Amazon link in the show notes because we want to make sure. Um, I might just go get it on Kindle right now and then go order the real thing. <laughs> the way these things work out these days, you can also get it on Walmart's website. You can get it on Books A Million. There, there's all those websites are are sort of interconnected some way. Barnes & Noble is separate from Amazon, of course. Yeah. But there's connection between Barnes and Noble and Walmart. So you never expect these things. So every so often, I was looking through a Walmart website, my book came up. And what were you looking for on that Walmart website? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. I was so stunned to see my book. I can't even remember. Oh, that's great. Okay. Uh, listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. Share this episode. Jamie's story is worth listening to again and again and again. And I mean, we only heard part of it today. <laughs> and with all due respect to your third book, my notes, I say, who needs fiction? <laughs> <laughs> What a nice thing to say. <laughs> Jamie Bowman, thank you so much for being my guest today and sharing just even part of your amazing story with us. Thanks, Agnes. It was a total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great rest of the week. You too now.